Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians, one of whom has been reviewing new cars for almost 30 years. That's me, Steve Schutz, and the other of whom is a trauma surgeon. That's my co-host, Stefan Moran. Discuss car topics of the day from a perspective you won't find anywhere else. All right, let's get started. Welcome to episode three of Cars on Call. Uh, I am Steve Schutz, along with my partner, Stefan Moran, and we are going to be talking cars again. We're going to start this time with a couple current event uh, episodes that happened, a couple couple current events, and they're both interesting. And Stefan, I'm going to start with the fire. Uh, we're, we all know about the fire. It's uh, the, the car transporter. Uh, I'm the Felicity Ace. The Felicity Ace. Yeah. And and I don't know if I'm the only one who's had this thought, but that is like the perfect stripper name. <laughs> Felicity Ace. Felicity, yes, exactly. Felicity, maybe. And the, the owner's Tiffany. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> that's, and, yeah that's it's funny. a car transporter. And I thought, well, best lap dance ever. Anyway, um, anyway the funny. Felicity Ace uh, is actually a, a car transporter. And I just saw in Automotive News this morning some details, so I'll, I'll give you some deets. It holds around 4,000 cars. About 1,800 were Audis. About 1,100 were Porsches. 189 were Bentleys. 85 were Lambos. And there were no Bugattis. There were rumors that there were Bugattis on the on the boat. But 85 were Lambos, including a handful of Aventadors. And the Aventador, as I'm sure you know, is uh, it's not quite out of production, but it's very close. Uh, and every single Aventador that they were going to build is sold. So they're going to have to redo those and remake them. I don't know how many there were. They didn't, they didn't say. So it was a severe fire. I thought it was noteworthy that there's no announcement. Even in today's article, it was no announcement about the cause. And you know, you've got about $400 million worth of damage. Stefan, what do you, what do you think when you read all that? Well, you know, first world problem, you know, but um, I, yeah, I think clearly this fire they can't put these these ships. I'm sure have all kind of fire suppression and stuff, but you know, everyone on the internet is speculating it has to be the batteries. You know, something with a battery caught fire, an um, electric or car. yeah, electric car or the ship caught fire and then the batteries you know went off, and so that got me thinking. You know, always we all think that electric cars just spontaneously combust and catch fire. I mean, it makes the news. So we think that's happening all the time. So I actually looked up and, you know, we'll get into this into the school bus safety at the end, but okay, let me see some numbers. So, you know, we got hybrids, internal combustion engine and EVs. Which one do you think catch fire the most often per hundred thousand sales? So you always got to have, you know, for every numerator, you got to have a denominator. You just can't say, yeah, hundred thousand electric cars caught fire. Well, how many electric cars are there to catch fire? So numerator, denominator, so rank them, which one do you think? Are most likely to spontaneously combust and burn. Yeah, I am certain of this. I, I'm sure I know the answer. It has to be internal combustion engine because there's lots of fires. But the difference here's my answer: internal combustion engine number one, probably by a significant margin. The difference is, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong. Internal combustion engines catch on fire more, but they're smaller fires and they're easily put out. Electric motors, electric cars. Fewer fires, but bad, man, they're hard to put out. Exactly. So, but actually, you're wrong. No, so, right. the per no, you didn't. You're wrong. 
I'm wrong. Once in your life. Yeah, you're wrong. You're wrong. So this is per 100,000 sales. Okay. So, so this, we got a denominator. So hybrid 3,474 fires per 100,000 sales. Internal combustion wow. engine, 1,500. So three times. Oh, yeah. Almost. Yep. And then electric cars, 25.1 per 100,000 oh, sales. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's... It's the sky is falling. It's our national news. It is entertainment that is not real news. And yeah, you show a picture of a burning Tesla. Oh, they all catch fire. You know, when Tesla crashes in autopilot, oh, they all crash. Well, no, it's so you always, you know, that's when we go back and all, this is important when we get to the end talking about school bus safety. And, and in the future, you have to have a denominator, you know, and in the fatalities, we like to talk about per million miles traveled. Okay. I really, I was kind of like you, I was thinking that, yep, it's even, I didn't even really consider the hybrid thing, but apparently think about it. That's the system that's complex. You got gasoline and stored electricity. So there you got, you got twice the possibilities of things going wrong. So yeah, I was very impressed with that. Um, but you're right. Putting those things out has got to be a hazmat disaster. But you know, the other thing that we all think about car battery fires I uh, also looked this up. And this is just the way my brain thinks, looking for the contrary. And how many lithium battery fires do you think occur in our skies? How often? How many, how many events per how many days do you think that the FAA gets a report of a bat- lithium, lithium battery fire in an airplane? Uh, I don't know, but I would say very rare. One every 10 days. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I had no I idea. So. Yeah, I didn't either. So I'm looking that's, at this. So that's everything amazing. we always well, got it. You got to have a numerator, denominator, and then you have to have a relative comparison. You know, they all call it the student chi test. You have to you have to compare a population. So, yeah. So it's a bit. You know, it's a first world problem. A bunch of nice cars burning up. You're lucky you got your portion. You did GT3 allocations. I know those people. Now it's interesting. What's the markup going to go at a dealer now? Yeah, dealer the markups are huge and. You know, of course, GT3s are there. There certainly were some GT3s on there. The uh, the last big fire that made the news was, I think, 2018, 2019. Uh, but it was it would have been 991.2, uh, and there were four or five uh, GT2 RSs on that last fire on a on a container ship. It's interesting that this particular fire got a lot more attention, and I think it's um, it's noteworthy that the cause has not been announced and. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. By the time this airs, we probably will have a, a cause and probably know, know a lot more about it. But as of what we know now, uh, no cause. And then again, a lot of very nice cars on that thing. Again, 1,800 Audis. I mean, forget about the, the Porsches and Lambos and, and whatever. I mean, that's, that's a lot of Audis. So some really nice, nice things went up in smoke. And uh, somebody else made the point, actually, in Automotive News, and they said, we already have a supply chain problem. You already have trouble making the cars and then shipping them. Well, now you got one ship that goes back and forth of 4,000 cars and it is out of commission probably forever. So anyway, that's the the Felicity Ace. And uh, maybe I gave someone an idea. The last uh, dance. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the last dance for, for the stripper Felicity Ace. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The second news item, which really caught my attention, I test drove an AMG GT sedan. It was, it was an AMG GT 53. And the reason I test drove that was there were no 63s. And the reason that there's no 63s is about six months ago, 
roughly, Mercedes very quietly announced that they were not going to be making their four-liter twin-turbo V8. It's the AMG workhorse engine. It's in the it's in the the G. It's in the GLS. It's in the the GLE. It's in, of course, the S class, the E class. It's everywhere. It's the sixty-three. AMG, and now you can't get it. And it's, it's reportedly out for uh, about a year where they're not going to make it. And I did, I actually emailed Mercedes at that time and I said, Hey, what's going on? When are these coming back? And I got an email, and I'll just read it because I think it's interesting. As I read it, just keep in mind, Stefan, that probably two lower level employees wrote this and probably. 20 people okayed it before it was finally released. And see if you can tell me what it means. Okay. Hi, Stephen. Please see below what we can provide. The company's prioritized focus to comply with various global, external, and internal requirements, as well as several other factors, including but not limited to challenges in the supply chain, have an impact on the offering of the product portfolio in various markets. Mercedes-Benz is exploring every opportunity to solve the challenges at hand as soon as possible. We will be working closely with our dealers and customers to help alleviate any inconvenience resulting from delays. What does that mean? That's a lawyer wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of big words in there. I love the button, but not limited to. Yeah. So with the background, before you answer, and I, I know you have an opinion about this, but before you answer, Keep in mind that these are the most profitable Mercedes products. And if you compare these cars, which again are highly profitable to Mercedes, and they're just saying, ah, we're not going to sell any, it's no big deal. BMW owns Rolls Royce. I saw an interview with the Rolls Royce CEO, also in automotive news recently, and he said, we get every chip we need. Every chip Rolls Royce needs is provided by BMW. Bentley, same thing. They can make as many Bentleys as they want, and Volkswagen will happily take chips out of Golfs and give those chips to Bentley because they're so profitable. So given that, it makes no sense to me that these AMG motors or engines are not made because of a supply chain. I think that's that's completely impossible. What do you think? I think it's bullshit. It's like Ford saying, oh, we can't make the 5.0 or a flat plane crank V8 anymore for our Mustangs. We can't get the parts. That's like saying we can't get the parts to make a F-150 limited. I mean, they are restricted, but their highest profit vehicles are going to where they, you know, focus in. I, there's, they're just, that letter is just full of, uh, I don't know, bullshit. I think <laughs> it's, there's, they're, they're hiding something. I just doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah. My, my sense is that it is, they actually did uh, allude to regulatory realities and, it could be that there was uh, some hoop they had to go through, uh, maybe EU, maybe who knows, maybe worldwide, but there, there was some uh, emissions hoop that they had to go through. And I think that any uh, since Dieselgate and the Dieselgate standard, I think every OEM is saying, we don't want to take any chances. I mean, you know, Volkswagen cheated and it cost them maybe $30 billion. It's a lot of money. And, and Volkswagen or, or uh, Mercedes just like every manufacturer is saying, we don't want to take any chances. And there might've been, maybe it was right up to the line with these engines. And they said, we don't want to take a chance and let's make sure it's okay. You would think though, Stefan, that they would just 
fix it. It's probably just a software thing. You, you know, instead of making 610 horsepower, uh, it's around there. I don't know what the exact number is, but instead of making 610, why don't we just detune it to 590? Our customers will be just as happy and we can sell these things. And pass an emission test perhaps without, yeah. But I guess, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, there has to be a lot of closed door discussion going on in light of uh, Volkswagen. Ian, yeah, it, it sounds very fishy to me. Um, I just, you're right. The most probable is like Tiffany's says they're going to stop selling diamonds now. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a good analogy. I like that. Yeah. Here's the result. Cars and bids. This would have been on February 25th. Cars and bids. AMG GT 63 sedan. So it's the four-door 63S, I should say. AMG GT 63S, 8,300 miles. Aha, it's a 630 horsepower turbo. Anyway, 8,300 miles, and it sold for 163, $163,000. That car, if you had in, a, in, a, in 2019, when you had plenty of AMG four liter engines, that car would have been, you know, 90, 100 grand, but 163 is what it is today because you cannot buy a new one. It's just a weird thing. So. Anyway, I guess that segues us over. Mentioning cars and bids segues, segues us to the, the collector car market. And we've talked a lot about this, and I, I find it fascinating because there was a collector car market, and people like buying collector cars. It just kind of was something that people did. And then all of a sudden, we had COVID March of 2020. And for a few months, probably March April, maybe into May, everyone was kind of frozen in place. There were lockdowns and nobody did anything and people were not buying cars. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like once we had spring into summer, the, the weather got warmer and people realized, oh my gosh, I'm working from home. I'm not spending money. I'm not going to vacations. It's like the whole world decided they want to buy collector cars. And you know, we talked about this. Part of it was that they had extra money. Part of it was that they were, they were locked down and they could drive around and, and you couldn't go to the store or restaurants. But part of it was the YOLO effect. And, and I want to hear your, your sense about this, but the YOLO effect, YOLO is you only live once. And you know, a, a friend of mine summarized it very well. He said, people started thinking, oh my gosh, I could die on a ventilator tomorrow because of COVID. And that changed what people thought. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, dying on a ventilator and COVID brings up um, a memory. One of my neurosurgeons that I work with, Joel Pickett, who's a huge Ford guy and a car guy and when we went to Indianapolis, uh, to NASCAR race with Jack, good guy, came, uh, Joel, great guy. And I forget we we're around in one day and, you know, the usual traumas and bad and people dying. And he looked at me and said, yep, you never know when your next breath is your last. And as part of that whole YOLO carpe diem that people realize they're sitting flush on cash and they're lucky they made it out alive or most now there's been so many deaths that everybody in this country should know somebody that died of COVID or a friend that had a friend, but we've all been touched by COVID and yeah, people are flush with cash. I mean, you know, I just read that, you know, Meekum at the Kissimmee auction, they shattered a world record, $217 million in sales with a 90% sale through rate. It was just, that's insane. You know, car dealers are, they're all up charging Ford and General Motors came out and said, dealers, don't be marking up the prices and no added dealer values on these cars. Yeah, it's um, ridiculous. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous you know. So, so Stefan, my sense is, you know, nothing lasts forever and YOLO is, is not going to last forever. And my personal opinion is that, 
YOLO is is declining. We all feel like COVID's almost over. And what I mean by that, Stefan, I don't want to be trite, but it it seems like people in 2020 into 2021 were thinking, I could die on a ventilator tomorrow. I want to buy that car. And the reason I think this is starting to decline a little bit, maybe a lot, is that now the sense, at least as far as COVID goes, and I don't, I don't want to comment too much more about, about collector cars as far as COVID goes, but as far as COVID goes, people are thinking now it's either the unwell or the unvaxxed are going to die from COVID. And if you're vaxxed and you're healthy, you, your, your fear of dying of COVID is much less than it was you know, April of 2020. Absolutely. I agree with that. And you know, I think kind of looking at the market, you know, one one of the markets I follow are the Cobra replica cars. And yep. uh and bring on bring a trailer about six weeks ago, there were seven Cobra SC replica cars on sale. Bring a trailer. I mean, I've never seen that many for sale one time on any market website, except for maybe Cobra Country run by Kurt Scott, who's been in the business forever. But yeah, I couldn't believe seven of them. They're all SCs, the SCs with the side pipes and and the roll bar. And you know, I you know I owned an SC a long time ago, and I had a Porsche red with white stripes, had a 351 Cleveland, absolute blast of a Cobra to drive. But you know, I've been married a long time, very fortunate, thirty six years. But owning an SC is like getting a trophy wife. Okay, it looks great, it's hot, and you know, but you better hope you get her prenup because it's not going to last. Being married to an SC is difficult. Your buddies, your kids, all your friends burn their legs on the pipes. Your feet what is an hot. SC, by the way? Let me. What is an SC? That's the, the 427 SC was the racing version of the Cobra with the jack stands and the side pipes. And it had the big 427 engine. So that's that's the racing version, which is the SC. That there were some that went into people had, and a lot of people had streets and converted, and they wanted the SC look, the real boy racer look. You know, I had one of those, been there, done that. Now I've got a street on order, a 427 street, but I'm actually not building a 427. I'm building an AC289 Sports, which is the European version of the 427 that has actually has a small block under car exhaust, no roll bar, no hood scoop and wire wheels. So it's going to look like just a classic AC. But yeah, I've been there, done that in the AC, but seven of them for sale at one time and they were bringing crazy numbers on bring a trailer for replicas and it's really slowed up here in the last couple of weeks i mean i looked yesterday there's only one now on bring a trailer but i think that was the ultimate peak of this yolo thing and and owning a cobra 427 replica is definitely a yolo event for a lot of people is but like i said uh, you're not you're not going to hang on to it for so long that's why there are so many for sale and people taking advantage of the market yeah, I think about- anytime, I mean, so any price is dependent on supply and demand ultimately. And anytime you've got prices that are this high, what happens is people decide, well, two things happen. Number one, they take their, their car that they're like, I'm never going to sell this. And then the prices are side, they're like, oh, I'll, I'm going to sell it. So you have cars that, that weren't going to be on the market suddenly emerge and, and they go onto the market. And the second thing happens is there's a lot of cars that people think, it's not worth restoring. And then when the price gets high enough, then it all of a sudden it is worth restoring. So I saw a thing on the internet. I think it was Instagram today. It was an old Dodge muscle car and it showed a picture of it in a swamp and somebody had taken out of the swamp and they were restoring it. And this was one of the old Mopar muscle cars with the mod top. Remember that Stefan? I had like this weird 
it's just a weird like it wasn't a vinyl top but maybe i have was. to look it up i don't know I'll, I'll have to look that up i don't remember it, the yeah if you top. google it it's very straight it's very distinctive and it's very odd i think it's pretty cool but it's very much like someone in marketing decided hey this is 1968 or 69 or whatever. It's a psychedelic year. Let's make this psychedelic looking roof. The kids will love it. It just is kind of weird. But anyway, because they were so rare and they were rare because they were kind of goofy, but because they're rare. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just now pulled it up. Yeah. With the flowers, I mean? but it looks like it looks like somebody put a drape over the top of the car. It, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously someone in marketing was watching the mod squad. Yeah, and the the old TV show, and then they're like, "Let's try that." So anyway, he this guy restored it, but you know, if the prices weren't high, then it wouldn't be worth restoring that car. So there's that's those are two things that happen where these cars get restored, and then that also and then also cars that weren't on the market come on the market, and eventually it starts to equilibrate as people pull back and and they say, "Hey, I don't want to spend money on on a car anymore. I want to go on a vacation now that you can go on vacation." So I do think there's going to be a equilibration. My feeling is that. This surge in the collector car market uh, is destined to end. It always does. And uh, maybe I think we're kind of starting to see the beginning of the end now, although the Kissimmee Mecham auction you're talking about would would argue against that. Yeah, I think. I mean, like, you know, best advice to anyone right now that wants to buy a car, wait, just wait, unless you, you know, you have to have transportation for work, whatever. But I mean, you know, I've got my order in for my new Cobra, but it's and it's a two year wait for that. It's all the replicas are a wait. Um, but yeah, if I you know if somebody offered me twenty five percent more for my bullet Mustang that I bought a little over uh, two years ago, I'd sell it in a heartbeat. Make twenty five percent on a depreciating asset, a new car. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, it is. And then you know, I, I it's, it's funny you can look at this almost any way. But uh, on the one hand, you take your bullet Mustang; it's a V eight naturally aspirated manual transmission car and you know in probably five years there's not going to be any anymore no more naturally aspirated v8s with with a manual transmission and that's probably forever like never again are we going to see that so i look at it like you know these internal combustion engine cars especially a, a, a and i would say kind of a medium collector market you know it's a car that None of what we're talking about or none of what I think about applies to uh, the Ferrari Enzo or any Bugatti or Koenigsegg or Pagani. The cars are going to be on the lawn in Pebble Beach in 50 years. This conversation doesn't apply to that. But Cobras, Bullet Mustangs, BMW M3s, this conversation does apply to it. And the reality is that on the one hand, they're not going to make them anymore. On the other hand, they did make them and they made a lot of them. Yes, exactly. So... It's interesting, you know. Before we move on to the next topic, you know, you mentioned GT3s, and and who doesn't like Porsche GT3s? But unlike the 911R, which was that collector car they made uh, five or so years ago at the end of the 991, I think that one um, era, the GT3, even the GT3 RSs, GT2 RSs, they actually make a lot of those. And that point was made. I, I read this in. Total 911 magazine, they made the point that the 991.2 GT3 RS, they made more of those than they made Carrera T's. The Carrera T was the entry 911 back at the uh, the 991.2 era. So they made a lot of these. And if you add up all the GT3s, the GT3 RS's, the GT2 RS's, 
there's a lot of these collector cards that people think of as they're definitely going to be valuable. And I, they made a lot of them. And I wonder how valuable they're going to be. I would say this, if you have one and it's got, you know, 12 miles on it, yeah, it's going to be valuable. But if it has five or six or 10,000 miles, right? I mean, how valuable is that going to be, Stefan? Right now, the demand is just insane. The whole supply chain and yeah, I would not be in the market right now for buying a collector car, resto mod, where people are just paying crazy prices because the leftover post-COVID yellow effect. And you know, with this economy headed and the uncertainty right now in the world with you know the Ukraine and Russia, I just maybe a car is a good place to have some cash. I mean, to, to set some cash rather than being in anywhere else in the market where you know. But I don't know. I just, I wouldn't buy anything right now because you're buying a car that's going to be worth more in five years than you pay for it today. But going into that, I wouldn't do it right now. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, you know, time is on your side. Uh, again, on the one hand, they, they're not going to make any more of them. And, but the, the reality is they're not making more uh, internal combustion engine collector cars, and they're going to stop making them. On the other hand, <laughs> they're not making any more internal combustion engine car enthusiasts. My Good kids point. want electric cars. Young people want, you know, if you're young and you sold your company for $200 million and you're 32 years old, a lot of those those kids that are rich, all of a sudden they want to remodel, you know, that electric thing, the electric supercar. Right. Yep. I agree with you. Yeah, so and, and the the internal combustion engine enthusiasts like us are literally dying off. So there's that reality too. I just find the whole the whole thing interesting. Before we move on to the next topic, Stefan, I thought about this as I was thinking about this topic, and that is okay. You can have one dream collector car, and you have to you have to have it for the rest of your life, but it's only one. What's it going to be? I, I was thinking about. It. I came. I, I think I'll surprise you with my choice. You want me to tell you first before you tell me yours? Yeah, go ahead because I think you will surprise me. I want to hear it. This you know what you know what mine's going to be. We talked about you've asked, you you always know it's when you send me these lists of your top ten, top five, top garage, yeah, yeah, whatever. But you, can, you can change. Yeah, I know, and I don't change. <laughs> Once snake bit, always snake bit. Yeah, you're all right. So I I think I know what yours is going to be, right. but the standard answer is supposedly the best answer is supposed to be you know 1963 Ferrari GTO, 250 GTO, and and that's a beautiful car. My answer. Actually, and it's because it came out when I was really, really, I was young and impressionable and really into cars, was the 1985-288 Ferrari GTO. So the the one that was based on kind of the, well, blanket, what's the TV show where he jumps into the car? Magnum you know, PI. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. It was based on that. It was that era, and they changed the body was very reminiscent. The body doesn't look that much different from a 308. But it was different, and everything was different. I like it because it's understated. It's an ultimate supercar, but it doesn't look like a supercar. And it's also from an era I really loved, the 80s. So there, I, I think I surprised you. You did, absolutely. You know, And you mentioned uh, the Ferrari GTO. That, I think, is the all-time most beautiful two-door coupe design ever. And, you know, the, they saw, you know, the WeatherTech guy came around. You know, he what, paid over $60 million for his. and um, 70, yeah. And but Nick Mason, you know, has got one. Nick Mason for Ralph Lauren has no Stefan yeah. and I are Pink Floyd nuts, but uh Nick Mason is a drummer for Pink Floyd. By the way, the only member of Pink Floyd who played in every single concert that they ever played. He's the only oh, member. Wow. That's, oh, that's cool. 
So, you know, that is my all-time favorite car. But to me, that's kind of like living with an SC Cobra. I mean, it's, you need a prenup. I think, you know, that was originally a race car. It's not going to be comfortable. So if I'm going to have one car, I'm going to drive the hell out of that car. And I don't think a 62 GTO would be a friendly car to take out very often. But so for me, going back and talking to earlier, for me, it's a, it's a 289 AC-29 Sports, which is a, mm. which is a Cobra 427 body, basically. But the rear end of the car, they had what they made about, oh, I don't, I can't remember exactly, around 32 or so. They called them the narrow hipped Cobras. So the fenders were much narrower, a much cleaner, smoother look. Not the, the rear end was not quite as bulbous and as big to accommodate the big racing tires in a small block and then under car exhaust in pure analog. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, when internal combustion engines go away in our, you know, there's not going to be in my lifetime, but anybody left around can still turn a wrench on a Ford V8 or a Chevy small block. I'm not worried about that. So I think that that is a car that I would enjoy to the last of my days. And then my children, whichever one fights over it gets it. That would be a car that I would drive all the time. It'd be an absolute blast, a pure analog experience. And it is a timeless design that when you know that that original Cobra is just a beautiful design that will stand the test of time. Both so that that's my car. Both of our answers, by the way, touch two bases that uh, I would say are parts of car enthusiasm that people don't think enough about or appreciate enough about. And the first one is what you feel when you're walking up to your car and you're 30, 40 feet away. That's is, is underappreciated. And the second thing that's underappreciated is the, is the exhaust note and the sound of the exhaust. Both of us have, you know, delicious, cars to look at and wonderful cars to listen to. And, and th those two things are, are very, very important. Oh yeah. It's that, it's that, that visceral feeling you get when a certain car goes by. We all had that, you know, not all this, but you and I car nuts as kids are certain cars that would just go by and you just, you felt it to the core of your soul. Like, Oh my God, that is just the coolest thing. Or, and just this want and desire that comes across you. And for me, Snake bit is the Cobra. You know, there just, you go. Cool. That's it. Well, the next topic is school bus. Hey, before we do that, we got to yeah. forget what Steve-O driving. Oh, okay. A car I drove recently and reviewed recently is uh, the Ford Bronco. And that was interesting just because it's so in demand. It's like very, very hot. People stare at you when you drive around. I got thumbs up. It was it was really something. The version I had was the Outer Banks, which is kind of the mid-level trim, but notably it was the four-cylinder with the six-speed manual. And uh, I thought a couple of things. Number one, underpowered. You really need the the larger V6 EcoBoost. It's a pretty heavy vehicle, a, isn't it? It's I, a heavy, it? I don't know what the actual weight is, but yeah, it's it's too heavy for the four-cylinder. Four-cylinder, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And there's the current version of the M5 and then the previous version, I forgot, I think it's F60, something like that, whatever. The previous generation of the M5, when I drove that and wrote about it, I said, there is a size above which a manual no longer makes sense. And that generation M5 was just past that size. And that's that M5 should have had only 
the paddle shifter, double clutch, automatic transmission. It shouldn't have had a manual. It's too big for a manual. Same thing with the Bronco. I didn't really enjoy it. It's, you know, I love manuals. I have two cars with manual transmissions and I always will. But unfortunately, that Bronco was just a little bit too big for that. Even if they offered the EcoBoost V6 with the manual, I would not get out and get the, uh, get the automatic. So that's what I was driving recently. I enjoyed it. It's a lot like the Jeep, which, in, in, which is a good thing. And people love the design. I love the design. It's a very good looking truck. Oh, it, you know, you talked about it. We talked about the visceral feeling that when I saw the new the Bronco concept, and still when I see a Bronco to the new Bronco, it's just, you know, the only thing cooler to me would be to see the International Harvester Scout redone. I just absolutely loved that. Um, for those of you that look back in the old day, you had the Bronco, the Blazer, and the Scout. They were all two-door, four-wheel drive vehicles. And yeah. A friend of mine, one of my dad's students actually had the Scout and would take us around tooling, off-roading. The first time I'd been off-roading in a Scout in a low crawl. And so, but yeah, the Bronco, same thing. It just, it's amazing. Here's the design that they came out with that the young kids absolutely love. And then gray-haired old dudes like us love it. And uh, it, that's, that's just a complete home run. Kind of like, you know, the, the original Mustang. That thing was a home run for every age group. Right. Men, women, all the age groups. So, I, yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute home run. I love the thing. Yeah, I did write in my review that it's very hard to make an automotive home run. It's, it's you know, the concept is easy. You just you, you design something people are going to like, and and you look at your your demographics and all that stuff. But it's really hard to actually hit it because it takes you know from the from approval to having a car ready for sale takes at least three years. And a lot can happen in three years and people's taste changes for one thing. And there's regulatory requirements. So there's, there's compromises you have to make in the design and, and the engineering and the engines and all that stuff. So there's all these, these limitations. A great example is how much trouble they had making the electric new uh, Volkswagen bus. So it's finally going to come out next year, but they had a terrible time making it because and you know this, Stefan, from a safety standpoint, your feet are the crumple zone in those old oh, yeah. Volkswagen exactly. buses. Yes. Like right. that's it. Absolutely. Your feet are out there and you're the crumple zone. Yep. This, the engine is behind you and you sit in front of the front axle. It's it's so to come out with a modern electric car that's still safe, but but at the same time gives you the the look of that that old bus is hard to do. Yeah, that driver is actually, I imagine when they finally come up that that driving position of that seat, it's going to be, for, the feet are going to be pretty far removed from the front end. It's not going to be the old style where they're right over the front, but the, to, to meet the pass safety. Because remember, it's all about how fast you go from 60 to zero and how much time and room the vehicle you have in front of you crushing. But that'll be interesting to see how they come out with that. Yeah. So let's move on to, okay. to school bus safety. And, and uh, you know, when I think about school bus safety, I think back to junior high, and uh, if you want to be safe, I always thought, well, you, you got to smoke in the back. But I guess there's more. There's more to it than that. There's more to it, and you know, this always comes up. This is. I never this, smoked that. I never smoked so. I, I just at least no. never smoked at a school bus. So that that's just a joke. But um, is the, and really, what this topic comes up is: should there be seat belts in school buses? Every couple of years, we have a, a school bus crash, which is most unfortunate, and it makes the news and always raises the topic of why weren't there seat belts in that school bus? Yeah. Before so, you start, Stefan, I 
absolutely said yes, of course. And I couldn't understand why there weren't seatbelts in school buses. I bet you many of our listeners have exactly that that thought. So yeah, go ahead and, and tell well, us. let me yeah, let me start with it. You reminded me of a story. So there are certain school buses that have seatbelts, and those are the very buses that have a, sh- a short wheelbase. You know that pick up um, children when with be politically correct here with handicaps or learning difficulties. So I had this patient, this has been a good while back and he'd been injured, had a head injury, and he just wasn't making a whole lot of progress mentally. He was just, just, he just wasn't coming along very quick. And I kind of had a feeling that the child had some learning disabilities, you know? So I'm trying to talk with the dad and trying to just politely, politically ask the dad is the father does the kid have any issues and he said looked at me said well why well, hell dog don't you know jimmy rides a short bus <laughs> and we're like Got okay it. all right so then but that for, explained for the standard school bus you know the, but the regular standard school bus big, and no seat belts. big bus short, yeah yeah so short buses don't have, so i only start with one of my favorite quotes and this actually came off of forestry magazine i've never been able to find this quote origin but entrenched beliefs are rarely altered by exposure to fact so i'm gonna we're gonna go through some facts here so uh, i was unfortunately involved in a mass casualty back in 2006 10, 10 in the morning, November 20th, a one of our Huntsville school buses crashed. It was going down the overpass in downtown Huntsville on a, a little 1990 Toyota Celica with one a 17-year-old driver. Not sure exactly what happened, but somehow the kid had an interaction with the school bus. The bus driver struck the, con- the Jersey barrier, the 30-inch concrete barrier. Bus driver was not belted. And this is before the day. Now you notice when you see People driving buses, vehicles, they've got bright orange seatbelts. That's part of came out of previous experiences like that. So the driver basically fell out of the seat. It rode the 32 inch Jersey barrier for 117 feet, then fell 30 feet off the overpass, fell 30 feet vertically onto the nose straight up and down of the school bus. So we had 43 middle school and high school students involved uh injured we ended up with four deaths we had 23 that were injured released the same day and um only one person came out unscathed but i was the i was the lead trauma surgeon that day taking care of this mass casualty and it was amazing to see our community surgeons and we're 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 a level one trauma center by the state of alabama and prepared for this kind of thing but you're never prepared for the tragedy something like this and so thinking about this, one big difference that we had never thought about in terms of mass casualties was what's the difference between middle-aged kids and a lot of high schoolers and adults? ID cards. Oh, you're right. Of course. These, no, no, ID, no way to yeah, ID never these considered kids. That. No, we didn't either. You know, we, and we dough everybody. Everybody's just, we do the alphabet, alpha dough, bravo dough, Charlie dough. I want to be whiskey dough if I ever come into trauma, but um, so and then you had, we didn't think about it. Now you've got 43 kids with one parent or multi-parents in divorced homes, all coming to the ER wanting to know what's happened to their kid. So it was, our administration did an amazing job. Tracy Dowdy was there, one of our administrators. He just, he did an amazing job. So those were things we never thought about. So this triggered the whole, why weren't these kids in seatbelts? And the governor actually formed a commission and I was part of that commission to present evidence 
And as the data, so should Alabama have seatbelts in their school buses? Well, it's a very emotionally charged issue. And do you even dare question the obvious? Well, of course, it's common sense. We should have seatbelts. But, you know, as a scientific researcher, we need numerators, we need denominators. And what does the data tell us? And I look at it as a trauma surgeon. Let's not just think about school buses. Let's talk about school transportation. Okay, the big picture. Not this school buses are but a segment of how kids get to school. You got to remember another thing is one of my other quotes I love is an N of one is not a data set. So one bus crash is not a data set to base all your decision to find. You got to go look at the numbers. So really it's a paired concept of school bus safety and public transportation safety. They're mutually non-exclusive. Kids walk to school, they ride bikes to school, they ride with their teenage brothers and sisters to school. They ride with their parents to school. They ride with their parents' friends to school. They carpool and they ride buses. Some cities, they make trains and you know take city transportation. For me, the real question is, how can we decrease school transportation-related fatalities? How can we spend our money to protect the most kids, the good for the greater? Let's just you know talk a little bit about numbers anyway. Motor vehicle collisions are the leading cause of death children the three to 14 years of age. And it's about 20% of all kids' deaths are related to motor vehicle collisions. What do you think is number two? I don't know. Firearms. 15%. Yeah, 15%. That's about overall two deaths a day. What percent of kids do you think that die in car collisions, there's alcohol involved? Uh, 60%. 19%. So that's actually actually gone down. That's because, man. And then 40% of the kids were unrestrained. So, you know, if we took out the unrestrained and that, so we look at it overall 120 fatalities in school transportation, 69% of those fatalities are occupants of other vehicles that get hit by school buses and things like that. So we, we had to go to bigger, a uh, longer period. So over a 10 year period, 2010 to 2019, I know it sounds like a lecture, but I want the numbers to help you understand what the issue is. We had 240 children died in school related crashes. 52 were in school buses, 90 were in other vehicles, 92 were pedestrians, five on bicycles. So if you add up the numbers, pedestrians make up 40% of the deaths. And you're 1.75 times more likely to die walking to school than you are riding a school bus. And then if you add up kids in other vehicles, kids that are walking, riding bikes, 3.6 times more likely to die getting to school than a kid in a school bus. So think about that. So the safest place is your kid in a school bus. And then 94% of passengers in school bus crashes weren't even injured. So the facts are your kid is better in a school bus than walking to school, than riding their bike to school, than riding with an adult or riding with a teenage driver. And school buses were designed and built for people not wearing seatbelts. So they have compartmentalization. The seats are high. They did lap belts one time, but lap belts are horrible because they caused a lot of abdominal injuries. And yeah, three-point belts did better in school buses designed for three-point belts. So that raises the question, what if we did do seat belts in school buses? Well, now all of a sudden your capacity changes. You go from 71 to 48 seats. So now you need more school buses. You put, you're pushing kids out of school buses. How do you enforce it? What's the school? What's the, you know, you're smoking in the back going to school. You think that driver can make sure every kid's got their seatbelt on? 
And there are several studies that showed that you only get about compliance in 50% of elementary kids, nearly zero in middle to high schoolers. Drivers can't enforce it. And then four experienced the same way, 50% elementary. And the only places that had good seatbelt compliance were when kids were at private schools riding on buses and parents were on the buses to enforce it. I mean, that reality, that just ain't happening. So three-point belts do provide safety benefits. They're very small, but the data does not mandate three-point data belts. So for me, the real question is, do we want to decrease school bus or pupil transportation-related fatalities? It's kind of a variation of the, remember the, the trolley dilemma, your real trolley coming down the track? Yeah, you're there the to switch vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here's the, here's the trolley coming down the track. And if it's going straight, it's going to kill seven people. You can pull the lever and the trolley goes to the left and only kills five people. Are you going to pull the lever or not? So it's kind of, which one do you want? Do you want to save the kids on the school bus or do you want to save kids getting to school in all modes of transportation that they do? So for me, if we're going to spend money on school transportation safety, decreasing fatalities, let's spend the money where the kids are most likely to get killed. And that's kids riding bikes, riding cars, 3.6 times more likely. So let's how about safer crossings. That's cheaper in a school bus. Getting yeah. parents out there at school crossings. Get children out of cars, off the streets, and in the school buses. That's where the money needs to be sent, not putting seatbelts in them. Yeah, and you know you always have the law of of unintended consequences, uh, and that is you you make it more arduous or more difficult or more of a headache to be on a school bus. You're going to take an alternate means of transportation, which is more likely to, to injure you or kill you. So it does make a lot of sense, and and especially the increase or the decrease in capacity in the in the school buses when you put seatbelts on. That's something. All of those thoughts are things that I never thought about, and I think it's valuable for our listeners to hear because it's such a such an important uh, important lesson. I would add uh, that uh, one thing I think is very interesting, and it's a difference between when you and I grew up and and our kids and and the new generation. And that is that I took the school bus to school every day, and I would walk. Did out. you walk uphill both ways? I did. <laughs> yeah, I would walk from my house to the the bus stop, and I would wait, and the school would pick me up, and a school bus would pick me up, and I'd ride and. Uh, I did not sit in the back and smoke. I, I know a few kids uh, would occasionally smoke smoke pot in the back, which was a this kind of uh, um, a scandalous thing, but it happened. And I didn't want to sit in the front because that was too nerdy. Although I was a nerd, I, I sat in like the middle, and uh, that was the, <laughs> I sat in the middle all the time. Anyway, the key was that I would walk to and from the, the bus stop. And now a phenomenon I've seen. I you must have seen it in your your area too. You've got SUVs that wait with the kids in the SUV. So you got Escalades and Yukons and kids are in there and then the bus pulls up and then these kids get out of their SUV or sedan or whatever. And then they get into the bus. I'm like, what, what is that? Why can't you just, it's not like it's a long distance. These kids just don't feel like being outside for, you know, five minutes. And this is not in rainy or snowy weather. This is just on a regular day. Isn't that crazy? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, I, I remember walking we lived in Ohio and uh, we rode the bus and, you know, back in the seventies, you know, long hair was, it was all about your hair, man. I mean, your hair was a big deal and there was no way in hell 
you know, after I got my hair all done and it usually was late, it was always a little bit wet. I was going to put a hat on my head and ruin my hair, to hair. But I remember walking to school and my having a helmet head because my hair would freeze. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I remember that. But, you know, I was not going to mess with the hair. It was just, it was just too important in the 70s. You know, yeah, just, I do remember having I used to uh, blow dry my hair for a little. Oh, bit. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But. Again, the idea, if, if it was raining, there's no way your parents are going to say, oh, yeah. No, sorry, no, Steve. hell no. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, we don't want your hair to get wet, so we're going to take you to the bus stop. It's like, no, go out to yeah, your bus. And, oh, did your parents bring you Chick-fil-A for lunch? No, I had a brown bag <laughs> with peanut butter and some chips. They didn't bring me lunch to school. Yeah, it's, it is it is ridiculous. Anyway. I, I tell you, whenever I see an SED wait by a, a bus stop, I think that's a shame. And and you should you should at least walk to and from your bus stop. So Yeah. All righty. Well, that, that wraps right. it up. By the way, I, I love that description because that's, again, it, that's something that nobody, you reflexively think, yeah, they should put seatbelts in school buses and you're wrong. So anyway. That's why, you know, that's why I like in the beginning, I said, you always have to have a denominator and relative value to everything. You can't, you can't look at things in isolation. The N of one is not a data set. And when you start looking at the numbers, it it becomes obvious, you know, like a lot of people say, don't confuse me with the numbers. Okay. I've already made up my mind. And um, so that's kind of the, this, the, the closing comment to the first one about entrenched beliefs. So, Amen. all right, dude. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it up uh, to our listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for, for taking the time out that will wrap up episode three, please like, and comment and subscribe and tell your friends about us and come back. We appreciate all of you very much. So we'll see you next time.